Have you ever thought about changing course and switching career paths? That's what artiste Florine Demasten did many years ago. Born in the U.S. and raised between Haiti and New York, Florine's work has been featured around the globe. Welcome to another episode of The Surge Experience. You know, it's funny because as long as I've known you, I've never, well, I don't think, asked you the origins mm-hmm. of how you came to become an artist. I never asked you that. Really? I don't think. We've talked about it, maybe yeah. around it, but when did that first come to you? Like, were you five years old and thought, no. oh, I'm going to be an artist one day? Mm-mm, not at all. I mean, I think, well, I know when I was younger, I was really looking at engineering and architecture. Because I like to make things. Mm-hmm. I've always liked to make things. I never saw myself as someone who um, maybe wants to be an accountant or wants to go to the medical field. I need something where I can be creative to make things. Um, then, you know, you, I don't know if they did it. You had to do it when you were younger. But like around sixth, seventh grade, they give you that, you know, two-day testing to help you figure out, number one, like if you are on par and number two, there was a portion of it which helped you identify career. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as you move into high school, at least I had to take it in the suburbs to give you a sense of, like, what your aptitude is like for a particular field. And my aptitude was exceptionally high for engineering. Mm. And I was shocked because I wasn't, like, great at math, you know, per se. And, you know, mm. that's always the thing. you got to be great at math. Mm-hmm. But there was something about how I can see and visualize things like very differently and you know how things are put together like I had a natural understanding of it so I went to college at first for architecture at City College and completely different different approach because you know you're in high school mm-hmm. you're doing all your required courses you're you know I took elective classes in like construction and architecture but when you actually get into a program it is completely different and this program, you know, some of the architecture programs then were more engineering-based programs, mm-hmm. and some of them were more design. City College sort of had both of them together. So you're being hammered by calculus and structures, <laughs> and at the same time having to attend a like intensive design class and then having to go write papers for your philosophy class. Mm-hmm. So it was like hitting you on all three, you know, levels. So many different ways of using your brain which I had never done before and so design then you know as a high schooler it was something like you think you there's a method a particular method to it or Mm -hmm. at least your teachers made it seem like it was something like you had to be gifted at to do Mm -hmm. you know like this person naturally has this gift and they naturally have this method of doing it but when you actually get into the program, you quickly realize talent is like a smidget of it, you know, Okay. completely smidget. A lot of it is being able to really process ideas. You might have the tools like you might draw well, you might be good at rendering. Maybe you've taken drafting courses so you can really draft plans or you're a digital person or you're really great at model making. But that just helps the ideas. That's interesting. So that's why, how you show the ideas. Yeah. 
So mm-hmm. it's almost like so you have the aptitude to do a lot of these things, but you still have to be trained. Mm-hmm. You have to train that gift in order to really execute and to become good at it. Is that what you Very say? Very much so. Yeah. And, you know, architecture programs probably still today are notoriously known as meat grinders because like you're, you're, you're grinding down like ground beef mm. and it's all consuming. Mm-hmm. Like when I'm saying it's all consuming, it's like when we were on campus, the students that were there 24 hours were the engineering students, the you know pre-med students, the architecture students. Mm-hmm. Guaranteed. Like, they, we See, lived there. My <laughs> freshman roommate was an, was an architecture uh, student. Oh, at Syracuse. And, so um, yeah, know. at Syracuse, right. right. And, um, but it, was, it worked out nicely because <laughs> when I would wake up, Y'all. He would be coming in to yeah, sleep. Yeah, you see. <laughs> so we were never in the room. I mean, he was great, but we were never in the mm-hmm. space together. You know, we had a split double. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah. so in that process, I took an art class. And then, like, just for to, like, loosen the brain, because my brain was on overload. So I took, like, a figurative drawing class and an art class. And one of the main reasons was because the architecture building was directly across from the um, art building. So even like right after mm-hmm. class, I can just cross, mm-hmm. go across and just <laughs> go back into the studio and work. Mm-hmm. So in that process is when like art really started to call me. And it, mm-hmm. I was in conflict for, for quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And then one of the students, I don't remember her name. Um, she was, uh, she lived in Long Island. She was super wealthy. I remember she used to drive this little Mercedes on campus. And she told me, she's like, you're going to like Parsons. You should check it out. Right. And I looked at her. I was like, well, yeah, you got money. <laughs> of course. Like this right. school is relatively affordable. She's like, no, no, you should check it out. I think it's going to, it's going to bring the things that you like to do together. So I went, I checked it out, I applied, but I wasn't ready for it then. So then I was just keep taking classes until, you know, I applied into the BFA program and credits transfer. So I like abruptly, ended architecture to mm. begin this program and you know the major that everyone will tell you well you won't make any money from what are you doing and what was the major specifically um it was fine arts so fine arts. painting drawing sculpture and so then i figured i'll do this and i could always go and do the masters of architecture it would have been three years it would have put me at the same place mm-hmm. at the end of the road right, right. it'll put it'll position me at the same place but this calling, you know, that I see now was an absolute spiritual calling. Mm. I just didn't know it then. It was just something that was just driving me and driving me. And every time I met an obstacle, it would just quickly be resolved. Like for the first obstacle, of course, is the money obstacle. Mm-hmm. Like I would say, I mean, I had to take out a student loan, but 75% of my tuition was paid up. Mm. So between grants and scholarships, I remember the last semester um i was running short so i was like oh heck forget it you know i'll sort it out during the summer you know if you do if you owe them money then they won't officially graduate you right but then you know you need the transcripts for grad school so right. i was like okay i'll have like a six-week window to, <laughs> to sort this out and so i just happened to go on a campus meeting and there was a new dean at one of the other divisions and she was like if you need any student here who needs any money come see me i was mm-hmm. at her door like the next morning mm. and she just cleared it did you go through this decision process mm-hmm. alone did your family have any influence over your decision mm-hmm. 
to change majors, especially because you were going to something that we would consider safe, as in it's traditional, mm-hmm. versus to now we're in the arts. And I'm yeah. just wondering, like, did you was that process something that you did alone? Uh, it was a. It wasn't a family process. It was a solo. It was. It wasn't a completely solo process too. It was at the time. It was you know with my boyfriend who then became my husband who then became right. my ex-husband. Right. <laughs> it was with him, and I think he. It was great. It was like I was meant to be with him during this period because you know we both come from the Caribbean, and so he understood all of the ramifications of me doing this and what it would mean. So I had like a lot of support from him. He's like, you just have to do it. But you're going to have to sort this out on your own because your family is going to be, they're going to be upset with you about this. And were they? Heck yeah. And they're going to blame me. So they thought, oh, it's him who's telling you to do right. all this stuff. So, But did you care? Because even at that point, did you, did you hmm. make a decision for yourself that, you know what, they're going to be upset, but I, it doesn't matter. I kind of know I want to go in this direction. Well, I knew I wanted to go in the direction, but at the same time, like, you know, first generation is so much pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, it's pressure from your immediate family, it's pressure from your extended families, pressure from friends who are also first generation as you. It's community pressure because, you know, you know, your parents want to be able to say, you know, Florine is an architect. You know, they want to say Florine's an artist because in their mind it's like they thinking those you know people they see on the streets of Puerto Prince selling paintings to tourists. Right. They don't right. understand like right. the art world. You know what I mean? They want to say you're a lawyer, you're a doctor. <laughs> right. You know they they want to use those titles in the midst of right. You know describing you or somebody asking how you're doing. They want to make sure they want to throw those things. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just got this visual of, <laughs> of you in the street. <laughs> Painting portraits, yeah, you know, like or even here in the United States, where they, you know, when they do the portraits of the of the people come, and they always give black people bigger lips, because mm-hmm. exactly. <laughs> I guess someone's conception is that we have big lips, so we need to exaggerate that which is big, which is another whole. But um, yeah, no, I get that. That makes sense. Yeah, so for them, it's it's it was like I'm, you're not getting my money for this, you mm. know. If you change your mind, you know, for my for my generation, like growing up Haitian. Your choice was doctor, lawyer, nurse, engineer, and that's about it. Maybe they'll let you be like an accountant or finance, but to them, that's not stable. It's all about stability, and they they saw those careers as being stable careers. Was that implicit, or were you told at a young age you should be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer? Yeah, so when told that, yeah, so when they're thinking thinking about you going to university. They don't see, like, the diversity that we offer at a university where I can go study anthropology or oceanography or Mm. I can be a physical therapist. They don't see that. They see what it is in IET, right? Mm. So, for example, you know, during my parents' generation, these were the fields that you choose but you know they were very specific because they were fields that allowed you to travel mm-hmm. there were fields that like garnered you a lot of respect you know so in their mind you know they're still living in 1950s 60s IET you know when you say you're a doctor you're a lawyer like everybody knows that in the community you you have a sort of people revere that so they take 
that and still apply it to be, you know, in the United States. But they, very few people really went in deep dives to understand the, the amount of choices that you have here. So then you get stuck into this world where, you know, you might want to learn, like, study classical music because this is your dream. But you're going to be a lawyer because mm-hmm. they're not paying for that. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, you're not, mm. they're not struggling for four years and making sacrifices for you to study classical music. You can do that on the side, you right. know. So a lot of it, yeah, it was hard. And it, and it took me a long time to come to that understanding. You know, like my parents are at that understanding now because, you know, the Haitian diaspora has gone into multiple fields. Right. But then in the like early 90s, that was a long time ago. So what was your sense when you decided I'm going to go to Parsons Mm -hmm. and study fine arts? At that time, did you conceptualize what your life would be like after graduation? Did you have a sense of what you would be doing in in the art Mm -hmm. space at that point? Well, my first thing was just to be able to pay for it. And so once I was like officially into the program, I was able to now calm down a little bit, but still the stress of having to figure out the financial aspect of it every year was stressful. Um, so that stress didn't necessarily leave me for, for a while. But I would say throughout the entire program, the faculty were very clear what being an artist is like. So they are all practicing artists. So the majority of my faculty were adjuncts. So they're mm-hmm. all working artists, mm-hmm. um, working designers too. So mm-hmm. I also took design classes, working writers. Mm-hmm. So everyone had a profession. So teaching was in full time. Mm-hmm. So you would come to their studio, you would go to openings. You you really get a sense of what it, you know, what it was like. Like I remember one faculty had like literally had a breakdown because she's invested a lot of money to the show so the previous semester she you know was talking about the work she was making for an upcoming exhibition and you know we were excited we went to her studio we sort of saw how some of these things translated into what we were doing into class the show opened and she did not have one sale and this is how we ended up getting another factory like she literally had a breakdown Mm. And then she came back the next year, you know, and explained what had happened. So there was a lot of sort of openness um, about what life is like as an artist. Is that unusual to to have a show or an exhibition and and not have any sales? Is that? Yeah. That's unusual. Not unusual. It's usual. That's usual. That happens. It it can happen. Okay. But it's also like, how do you prepare yourself for that? Right. So they didn't like I they didn't give us an illusion of you're going to go out there, you're going to be, you know, quote unquote discovered and you're going to start rolling into the thousands, hundreds of thousands into the millions immediately. No. They didn't give us that illusion. So a lot of, you know, the students went into different aspects of, you know, fine arts, design, a creative field. Mm-hmm. Out of I think it was like 52 of us who graduated in fine arts. One person got picked up like immediately. Okay. And she stopped and she's actually a friend of mine. I'm like, 
we reconnected four years later. I hadn't heard from her because I was like, what happened? Mm-hmm. And she seemed she was overwhelmed. Mm. So there's, there's, there's things you aren't prepared for. So for me, having seen, like, seen that process, I decided to also focus on the educational aspects, which would mean that I would need a, a master's degree. So I okay. knew by like going into senior year, that summer before the senior year, that I will have to apply to graduate programs mm-hmm. as not as a fallback, but um, as another aspect of what I want to do. So describe for our listeners mm-hmm. the type of artist you are and mm-hmm. the type of art that you currently do. Because obviously you graduated, you went on to grad school, you graduated, mm-hmm. uh, you entered the world. Yes. What is it that you, you produce and how do you describe that well, type of work? In terms of the physicality of the work, I I sort of go back to what my strengths are, which is pretty much working two-dimensionally. So I like to work on paper. Okay. So a lot of drawings, a lot of paintings on paper. And one of the reasons why I worked a lot on paper because as a student, I could never afford canvas or rarely <laughs> afford a canvas. Okay. And so I learned how to take high-quality paper, um, sort of finish the surface and work on it. And it just kept being something that I enjoyed. So the work now is a process of like collage and painting on paper. That's like the simplest way <laughs> to explain it. But when you look at it, it doesn't look as such. So I paint one type of paper and then collage it onto another type of paper. And then I use um, sort of materials that are not traditionally art materials, like glitter, uh, googly eyes, mm. all sort of like little wacky things mm-hmm. um, <laughs> that I attach on. So I like to like use things that don't necessarily like be- are what they are made for in the work, so they become something else. So recently, I've also started act, um, adding some sculptural aspects to the work. So I've been working with 3D printing and trying to see how I can sort of incorporate sculpture with these sort of works on paper. So many of us are not artists. So yes. when you talk about um, items that are not traditionally used in, in, mm-hmm. in, in art, and then, you know, it's hard for me to even conceptualize what that means. I've seen your work. Mm-hmm. I've seen the, would you consider them paintings? Paintings and drawings, both. Drawings, okay. Both, actually. Both, mm-hmm. Okay. So when you're saying they're two-dimensional, what makes it what makes a piece two-dimensional? What does that mean? For me, a two-dimensional thing is something that is necessarily flat. It doesn't oh, have I a see. third dimension. That's something in in the round. So okay. like a piece of sculpture. Okay. Or something like that. Something in the round. Okay. Um, you know, in four dimensions would be something like digital. You know, multimedia oh, work. Oh, I see. So you know, things that are I don't use the term flat, but can be like. Or it can be applied flatly. That's the easiest way to do it. Because then you have a certain type of art called relief. Right. Which sort of is a two-dimensional piece, but it also has three-dimensional aspects. But um, so traditional, but you asked like in terms of materiality, traditional stuff would be like, you know, inks, paint, um, clay, what else, stone. So what would not necessarily, those are the things that are, associated with making art so if you told somebody i'm a painter they think you're working with acrylic paint or oil paint 
if you say I'm a sculptor, they might think you're working with stone or you're working with clay and things like, you know, those type of materials that are associated, traditionally associated with art. But artists like to use different materials to see if we can sort of um, revamp the materials and make them into an artistic material. So the way I usually would explain it to my students is that you have a toolbox and over time you start adding all of these tools to your toolbox. So these are the tools you create. So you might find that, oh, I really like sandblasting and I'm really good at that. I like to sandblast the glass. So, okay, that's a tool that I might use later on where I work with glass. Or, you know, I like to cast things and, you know, plastic. So that's a tool that I'll put in my toolbox. And then you have an idea where the two come together. You know, maybe I cast in plastic, but this certain type of plastic I can sandblast. Okay. So okay. artists are always sort of acquiring a set of skills, mm-hmm. a set of materials mm. that start, you start to add to your toolbox to allow you to have this sort of um, uniqueness to what you do. Okay, so that that's materiality, I guess you yes. would. Uh, so, what about the themes of the art that you? Now, this do? is where it gets tricky. It's okay. the concepts, <laughs> right? Concepts. Okay. Right. So, not everyone necessarily. It depends on the art. So, some art are not conceptually driven. So, they're really about the materials, and it's about working through a particular material. So, for example, I might work with recyclable plastics. Mm. So there's a lot of information that that material is codified itself. You know, it's it's a waste in the environment. Um, we can't recycle it. But at the same time, it's uh, used every day. It's a util- utilitarian material. So now how can I change something that somebody uses every day into something that's different, something that's interesting, something that's unique? So that's one kind of concept that maybe can be driven by material. Then there's concepts that are driven by a particular idea that you have. I'm more the idea-driven person. And then from the idea, then I work through the materials to get the materials to like bring forth these ideas. Wow, that, that's really interesting. So mm-hmm. I want to I wanna take a quick break mm-hmm. here, um, but I want to talk to you uh, when we come back about uh, growth in the in, in the space, your growth as a professional and as an artist, because uh, mm-hmm. there are people who are listening right now who might want to do the work that you do, mm-hmm. um, but they can't really explain it to their parents. They can't even explain it to themselves. Uh, and I want to talk about, you know, some of your residencies around the world, the Caribbean, <laughs> Ghana, Slovakia. Yeah. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that when we come okay. back. you been the surge experience is bringing you interviews with thoughtful people on some interesting topics we go deep and sometimes not so deep check us out on spotify apple podcasts google podcasts and other platforms we're also on dc radio 96.3 hd visit us at thesurgeexperience.com yeah. Oh so no, we God. were talking um, before the break about mm. making mm-hmm. art mm. a business for yourself. A yes. lot of 
young people have an aptitude for artistry and being artists, but mm-hmm. they don't know, well, how do I make a living out of that? Like, how does that, how does that work generally? And how has it worked for you? There, I don't think there's no generality about it. Um, it's too difficult to say it's, you know, there's a generality about it. I think particularly as a black artist, probably the first thing that comes to mind is, is the pricing. Because oh, so know, be clear, we're talking about mm-hmm. pricing of pieces of yeah, art. Pricing, pricing of artwork. Artwork, which but can be what? In your case, it's canvases. It's it's works it? on paper. I mean, but they let's let's take it back. Okay. Right. So in terms of making a business, art is like any other business. Mm-hmm. You have to have a business plan. Mm-hmm. You have to have business goals. You have to. Um, provide consistent you know whatever it is you're selling has to be consistent it has to increase in value and there's multiple ways you have that increase in value so i often and people don't like it but i often compare it to like a bakery you know if i'm selling muffins right what makes my muffin unique Mm -hmm. right so what makes that muffin so unique that I can ask, you know, $10 for a muffin, which sounds outrageous. But we all know people queue up for $10, $15 donuts. And croissants. And croissants, yeah. Cronuts. Right? Cronuts, yeah. there right, you right, go, right, cronuts. Right. But there has, because there's a uniqueness um, and there's a value in that, whatever this perceived value is. And then you have to continuously add value to not only maintain the price of this product, say, you know, your $10 muffin, but you might also have to introduce people to other muffins that you're selling Mm -hmm. that's available. Okay. You know, and then you have to have your buyers, which in our case are collectors of these muffins who will can, who wants to come back, who wants to talk to their friends about it. I see. You know, art in, in its essence is exclusive. To purchase art is not, it's an exclusive piece of commodity mm. because it can't easily be reproduced. It can if you sell prints um, and replicas, which some people do. That's one avenue that they take. You might make a painting right. and you sell multiple prints of the painting. You find artists doing that. But in that process, it can be very difficult for you to increase your value because now you sold 300 prints. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see? So it's at the very beginning, you have to decide what your goal is as an artist. Do you remember, you had an art show, I don't know mm. what year it was, in Chicago? Yes. Was that 2018? 19. 19. 19. Mm-hmm. And I remember, well, I remember the pieces. Yes. And I want to say, was it that, it, it, I think it was, can I say, was it of you? Yes, I was used of myself you. in the work, yeah. And there were, I don't know, 10, 15 pieces or something. Yeah, like 15 marks. In but, I, but I believe it was, a, I think it was a story, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about um, art being kind of exclusive and not being, or shouldn't mm-hmm. be, I don't know, reproduced, if you, know, you want to maintain it its value. Be. It can be. Yeah. But in a, in, a, in, a, in a situation like that where you have 15 pieces that seem to be one story uh-huh. together... Would it be okay for someone to come and say, I want piece number eight? 
and to leave the other pieces out. And doesn't that doesn't that take away from the value of what's left behind in the series? No, it doesn't. Because art to to work, let's say in terms of fine arts, you can work in multiple ways. So one way is to work through the gallery, which is what you experience. Okay. You know what we saw. One another way is to work through an artist rep. So that person reps you through different collectors. Another way is to work on your own, you know, sell work by yourself. And in that process, and in each one, there's multiple breakdowns of that. So at the very beginning, a lot of artists, when we work on their own, they might make prints. You know, these are the things that I would, you know, black artists would reach out to me. And one of the first things that they realize if they go sell at like a fair, a local art fair or a local uh, craft fair, you know, one of these summer street fairs, mm-hmm. that the audience is very reluctant to say buy a work for 500. They're very reluctant. So because it's a street fair? Not as a street fair, they don't see the value in it yet. You know what I mean? So if I let's say I, I'm a black artist, I go do an event in X black community mm-hmm. and I'm selling paintings. Yeah. And they're the price range from say like three hundred to a thousand. Mm-hmm. I would I might have a very difficult time selling the works because we don't necessarily value art. We don't understand the the business of art. Oh, that's interesting. So we don't understand like art is probably one of your best investments that we can make. Before they would invest in art, they would invest in real estate. They would sure. invest in um, other other things, whatever these things may be. But in let's say if you're having a discussion, like art wouldn't even come into play. And art is one of your best investments. Is that right? Your, yes, absolutely. That's interesting. You will only yeah. gain. But you have to know how to purchase art, when to find, where to find the artist, how to purchase from the artist, and how to be able to um, sort of maneuver through the art world. Like, for example, I'll give you a good example. I purchased a work at, when you met me, when mm-hmm. you came for the show, mm-hmm. um, a few months before that, there was the Chicago Art Fair. Mm-hmm. So I went to the fair because I was showing at the fair with my gallery, and I purchased a work from you know a black artist in Miami. And I couldn't believe how little the work was being sold for. And I bought a piece. I still think I re- regret it today, not buying a big piece because I kept debating. But I said, let me buy a smaller piece because I really just love the piece. It was about $1,500 framed and everything, and they shipped it to me. Mm-hmm. That work now, now today, is at least ten grand. Wow. Yes. So how do you know if a piece of art is yes. going to appreciate in value? Well, this or do takes... they all appreciate in value? Is that... How do you know? For the most part, yes. Like... Think about it. Has has a Van Gogh, a Van Gogh ever lost its value? Has a Manet ever lost value? No. Right, but there must be some sort of um, base standard. Obviously, if I try to go paint something right now and then sell no, it, no, there's it's work not gonna... you have to okay. do. Okay. To bring value to your work. Are there? I mean, I know there are people in the industry who value art, right? But is there someone standing over you or involved in the process as you create, saying, okay? If you do this, it'll have a certain value 10 years from now. You do that. Or you just know as an artist no, that but that's this, But this is where we start with the plan. Okay. So oftentimes what happens as a black artist is you go out there, you know, you've been making art, mm-hmm. whether it's 
a lot of times graffiti, sometimes craft-based work. You have a lot of community support. You're known as a community artist. So you start selling in local communities, in your local community. You might get public art projects, you know, to do murals. A lot of people were educators. Um, and they start selling pieces. So oftentimes that opportunity comes through events, like the space that we're sitting in might have an art event so you can come and install your work mm -hmm. but oftentimes what happens is the artist installs the work but they're unable to sell at the prices that they want to sell because the community does not understand collecting in the artwork mm -hmm. so what they then do is to make copies so they have multiple different copy processes so they'll find that it's easier to sell a print of the painting for maybe $50, $100, than it is to sell the painting that's $500. Wow. Yes. So mm. that's one facet that artists go into. But the problem with that is now when you want to move into another aspect of the art world, it's difficult mm -hmm. because now you've saturated the market with your work and you have not increased the value of your work. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense. You you're not, you can't blame the artist because you have to survive. Mm -hmm. That's just the reality it's reality of it. If you want to make a career as an artist, you really have to. Sometimes, you know, I wouldn't say devalue your work, but you you put your work in certain realms that that in the in the time that you're doing it, you don't know it might not benefit you in in the future. So the first thing I always say to the artists that I work with is establish your plan what is it that you actually want to happen with the artwork okay so some people might you know might just want to be able to say i want you know um a store where i can sell these works i want to place my works in stores some people might say i want gallery representation mm -hmm. some people might might just want to work with public art but if you don't have a plan it's like where are you going you're just sort of spinning around in circles right you know, for me, I knew going into this other aspect of the art wor world, which is wor uh, working with galleries, um, through exhibitions, working with cura you know, curatorial projects, things like that, is a long haul. So I, I worked as a full-time artist and had a full-time job because I know that takes time for that to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and then adding value to the work through having certain exhibitions like museum shows having your work written about you know people talking about it people talking about the quality of the work um the concepts of the work all of this starts to add value to what you do and sometimes artists don't want to spend the time to do that so it's not just the making you know making the work is one thing mm -hmm. but there's a lot that goes into add value to the work. Okay. Now, before the break, I was talking about how you've had residencies in different places mm -hmm. around the world, really. And are you necessarily planning that out, like you're targeting your art toward a particular audience, or is it that you create what you create and then residencies and opportunities open up wherever? No. I constantly apply for things. Okay. That's what I'm saying. This is all of the value adding okay. to the work. So through the application process. So for example, in a given, like this year, I have a folder on my desktop. I think I applied to 30 things, which was very little for me. 
And out of the 30, I think I got five. Wow. Yes. Um, and one of them, which was surprising because it was like the third time I applied, was the New York Foundation of the Arts grant, which is very difficult to get. But what happens every time you're applying, there's a committee that is judging the applications. Okay. So they're viewing your works. The people on the committee are like museum curators, um, collectors, gallerists. They're people from all aspects of the art world. Mm -hmm. So they're seeing your name appear. And when an opportunity might open in whatever their particular field, they'll reach out to you. Nice. So pretty much, I would say the majority of things I apply to. And the ones that come up like this year... I was asked um, if I wanted to have a book cover with the poet. And that's because she knew my work. Mm -hmm. And she had seen my work in, I think, Chicago. And she was like, this is the person whose work I want as my book cover. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, things come because I'm constantly applying to things. So tell me more about the concrete themes and concepts of your work. Because I couldn't necessarily describe them. I've seen some of your work. I don't know all of your work but it, it's i know that the 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 series that i'm thinking of the one in chicago uh -huh. um i think you were in it right yeah almost but all the work i used my bot myself oh i didn't realize that yeah okay and so what would you describe that as i mean is there is there a, a title we put on that kind of art where you are part of the artwork constantly what do we what do yeah, we consider i mean that? it's basically figurative Figurative work. work. Yeah, figurative okay. work. Um, okay. It's not necessarily about me. So it's not like this self-portraiture mm -hmm. as you think of someone like Frida Kahlo. Yes. Where she, you know, painted herself. Right. And sort of processed things in her life through her works, mm -hmm. you know, on canvas and mm -hmm. on panel. It's not like that. I just use my body, you know, in terms of depicting my body. Um, I use it as a vehicle to sort of play around with the ideas in my head. So a lot of the themes of my work deals with spirituality. Okay. Um, and looking at spirituality through an African lens and also a Caribbean lens and see sort of where they overlap. Okay. So I'm looking at themes that run through a lot of our practices that have been abandoned. You know, a lot of our deities that people don't necessarily understand. Mm -hmm. And so the titles become a sort of a guide. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the sort of aesthetics of the works in terms of the poses and how the figure's looking at you, all of those aesthetics help you to understand these sort of spiritual aspects of the work. Okay. Um, Would your artwork be necessarily considered, and I don't know what the, the categories are, but mm -hmm. is it... Um, would it be Afro-Caribbean ethno-centered art or is it, it no, no, it's none of that. Only, honestly, only if you saw me, you would, you would even know I'm a black artist. Okay. Because the work is not necessarily depicting race. Right. Which often people try to push it into like these sort of racially charged categories. Do they? You mean your art in particular oh, yeah. or just generally? They but try to it? push it into the racially charged category, to the gender charged category. Is that right? And it has nothing to do. Is there value in doing that? Like, why would they want to categorize it that because way? Because we always want to categorize black art. Okay. <laughs> we always want because, to yeah. push us into one area to, to have it be comfortable to talk about it. 
you know, so there, there's a thing where there's comfortability to talk about these. You know, these are some things, some of the um, themes that I worked out during undergraduate and graduate. And I was mm-hmm. realizing, oh, this is makes it easier for you to talk about it. But you don't really ever want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Like, talk, talk about mm-hmm. it. You want to sort of glaze over it and make it racial work or gender work. But you really don't want to deep dive and discuss it. Mm-hmm. You know, so right there, I was like, it, for me, it was just sort of pointless. Because I want the discussion. I wanted to affect your mind and your spirit and for you to like bring it back to yourself yes and and to reflect upon yourself and i was finding that these topics were always polarizing mm-hmm. always mm. so there's never there was never a middle ground mm-hmm. where we can you know we can meet and have an open and honest discussion about right. it right you know like if you want to talk about white privilege it's hard to talk to a European-centered person about white privilege. They're not going to understand it mm-hmm. because they're not living it. You know, they're not living it. So it's very difficult for them to have, to be empathetic with what somebody else is dealing with because they're not living it. They're living in the privilege. So it's almost impossible yeah. for them to understand Yeah. Not until, right. which I have seen, yeah. living in Ghana, that is stripped away. I don't know if this is a stretch, but I was on Instagram yesterday, <laughs> and there was um, video of a bunch of mostly, pretty much all white, maybe mm-hmm. some Indian, maybe some Asian, young people, let's say 20s, mm-hmm. at 71st Continental subway station. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was a concert or whatever, but they're jumping around. It's like jam-packed on the station. Mm-hmm. They're on the... Um, the train benches and they're like, ah. and then someone wrote and I this is what I thought mm-hmm. someone wrote in the comments now you know if those were yeah people of color men of color black we girls be wilding. Or, we'd be wilding there'd be police and then someone a white person responded and said uh, that's a very blanket general statement why do you have to make everything about race that's racist and right. I thought to myself no actually that that's not racist it's just that you want to be able to have this moment as a white person where race doesn't come in the issue come into come into the uh discussion because you want to live and for the most part get to live your life where you don't have to think about those things but it actually is racist Mm -hmm. to deny the person of color the um opportunity to even express what they they they, what they're seeing and feeling and and to to reject it right off the bat they know because Mm -hmm. they live the experience as a person of color that if it was them and all their homies (laughs) and friends jumping up on the platform Mm -hmm. and on the trains that police would be involved but you see it's fascinating to me yeah it's true but until it is stripped from you Mm -hmm. until you really experience it then you understand. So if you leave the country, like I said, I lived in Ghana yeah. and I would see it. It's happening in South Africa, mm. you know, where like the whites are very upset they're not being prioritized for jobs. I've sat and right. listened to the Africans just say some craziness. And I was like, oh, so you liked it better when black people were suffering and subjugated. And, and you were centered. Right. You were centered. Yeah. So for the first time, they're not being prioritized for jobs. Wow. 
Right. And, and in the black South Africans are like, and, <laughs> you know, mm. but they're experiencing what the system they established created. So now they can start to understand, or at least try to understand. And some of them, I mean, I've had conversations with people completely understand because they know this is what their forefathers created. Wow. So now it's just the reverse of. Right. And they're not, they're not angry about it, but you have groups that are so angry about it because they still demanding their white privilege in a country that's not theirs in a country that they dominated, that they took over that they, you know, they had a hundred year war. Yeah. You, you You understand the mindset. So to me, like being through these programs, I already knew. I, it's not that I'm afraid of these topics. I knew people can't be sensible in these topics. It always becomes polarizing because they people need to experience things. They need to be placed in that experience where things are stripped away and it can help them to be more empathetic to the situation. Right. Until then, it's just like, well, you're being lazy. You're complaining. It's not about race. You don't need affirmative action. You, you, <laughs> you know, don't like, need DEI initiatives. You know, it's, it's, it'll, it'll just right. continue to be that. Sure. But if you strip it away and you live where you're the minority right? and you live under that same system, then you'll start to understand how black people feel in this country. Mm. Until then, it, you just it's just talk because you can say what you want because you have the privilege. Right. Right. You see where the mindset is? Yeah. Yeah. So how is your you when you were doing your residency in Ghana, for example, mm-hmm. um, who's coming to the galleries? Um, is it is it uh, people from all over the world who happen to be in Ghana? Is it local, you know, Ghanaians? Is it? Well, uh, Ghana was a it's very unique place because first I traveled to Ghana for a year. Yes. I was supposed to be there for three months and right. I ended up staying a year. And then I moved to Ghana. So I moved and worked in Ghana. Right. And in that midst of working in Ghana, I was having shows all over like Europe. Mm-hmm. I like left America alone. So the shows were happening in Europe and Africa. Um, and at that time, a new gallery opened up in, in Ghana and they had a marketing sort of machine behind them. And the marketing was coming out of the UK. And within two years, all of a sudden, West African art like blew up, particularly coming out of Ghana. So you you've had this sort of movement out of West Africa with you know portraiture, predominantly based in portraiture art. You had some people work with abstract art, but predominantly based portraits. In portraiture, portraiture yeah. they call it, of mm-hmm. people basically. Yes, paintings yeah. and drawings of, of black people. Let's be very specific: mm. of black people. Um, and of a particular styling, too. Really? So, like, most of, like, we have, you know, uh, one of my favorite movements, Impressionism, where they, you know, really dealt with color and landscape in a very different way. Same thing's happening in West Africa, where the first time you're getting this very particular type of painting, color, and particular style of um, depicting black people. Mm-hmm. And so that starts to just blossom. And with southern parts of Africa, mostly Zimbabwe and South Africa, but most of the work coming out of South Africa, very politically charged work um, of all different types of media. Yeah. But then in West Africa, you go back to a very sort of traditional 
sort of method of making art. Mm -hmm. So I was in living and working there, making art and working full time in the midst of all of that happening. So I think like I quit my job and decided to be full time because it was too, too stressful. And I had a show with the gallery. Uh, this was 2018. And one of the first things um, the gallerist said, he was kept saying that people are not going to understand the art because mine is more conceptually driven. So it's not just sort of uh, painting figures right. in particular mm -hmm. uh, landscapes or backgrounds or, you know, particular environments. It wasn't like the aesthetics, solely mm -hmm. the aesthetics mm -hmm. of painting the black body. Mm -hmm. There was a concept driven behind it and it was going to be very evident because it wasn't going to be like, oh, this is Kwesi at the market. And, you know, I understand, given what's there, it's about this particular painting yes. of a particular type of Kwesi. Mine is like, well, okay, there's like nude, big-bootied figures floating around in glitter in like ambiguous environments because there's very little background. Right, so, so I'm just thinking, yeah, yeah. what does that do? How, how is that received? I mean, to be clear, mm -hmm. you're talking about. I mean, I don't know. You you do uh, uh, images uh, that are not you sometimes. No. I assume. Oh, you don't. Okay, no. so we're talking curves. We're talking um, um, thighs, back thighs. Fat. Right, right, <laughs> right. So it's definitely not euro centered. No. And so, mm. do your uh, does your art elicit? Uh, particular kinds of dialogue necessarily or does some people just I just like it and I'm taking it I mean what what kind of discussions well, you know this show that? was the first time I was like dropping the backgrounds okay and then I was using I mean there's a whole thing about the craziness of making the work in Ghana but I decided to use glitter which I thought I had like lost my mind I was like to heck with it we're just gonna do this I gotta get the work up and the response was phenomenal like they all understood exactly what I was talking about. Hmm. So for me, I was like, huh? Oh, the African mind is understanding me. The American mind might not understand me, right? Because I had not, by that point, I had not been in the U.S. for like four years. Mm -hmm. I had not shown in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And maybe like a year and a half later, or mm -hmm. barely, like a year later, I did um, a solo booth at the Armory, mm -hmm. which is these figures. And I kid you not, I did not know which way it was going to go. Because I was like, oh, my gosh, Florian, you've lost your mind. You're mm. using glitter, this stuff. You know, this is <laughs> New York art world is so critical. Right. You know, and sometimes they're anti-figurative work. And, you know, this is what we talk about racially charged work, all of these things. For me, that wasn't in my mind. Mm -hmm. It was just about the spiritual ac aspects. And again, it exploded. Because the work was like these bodies that you don't Normally necessarily see. see. Yeah. You know, where to me, which is, you know, your traditional black body, mm. you know, it is filled with curves, you know, your Western, yeah. your West African black body, yes, yes. which is filled with curves. And it was curves to be proud of. Right. You know, it, and so to me, it was just completely different. It was even how I saw my own body, you know, with the American way of growing up here, of always trying to change your body, mm. having aspects of Haiti where there is an acceptance, but there's always big influence of the United States. You know that in the Caribbean, we're so close, so we're heavily influenced. 
but to go to Ghana where you have that influence, but the traditions sort of act as anchors and, you know, and so they're, they're there and this is like the primo body. It was like, it was crazy for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. I had students and my students used to tell me like, why do you dress like this? Every day they were asking me, I was like, what do you mean? Mm. They were like, if I had that body, ha, <laughs> I would have nothing but tight clothes. <laughs> I was like, what? They're like, Miss Florine, you're wasting time. Right. Everything is too loose. You too need to loose. Tight. I was like, you all are insane. <laughs> Anybody was true. <laughs> I had an assistant. And she used to say, she's like, I'm tired of walking behind. Like, she would walk next to me. She's like, I can't have to walk ahead of you. I said, why? She's like, you don't see what I see. <laughs> I was like, oh, God. <laughs> you know, down to, like, the gappy teeth. Right, right. You know, all of these were seen as signs of beauty. And, you know, I, I've been, I've had my hair shaved for a while. Yes. For a very long while. Yes. And, Women who like come into um be like uh queens mm-hmm. or spiritual spiritualists, they normally shave their heads. Mm. So people just assume that and, and it just kept going to the next level because my surname is Demosten, but the H E and E they pronounce Hene, which means king in a Khan. Mm-hmm. So they would see my name, they would not see Demosten. Oh, okay. They would see Demosten, Demos Hene. Yes. Uh, and it just was like, oh my gosh, she's, you know, her family mm-hmm. are of, you know, king and queenship <laughs> in Ghana. I was like, oh my God, this is insane. It's a lot to. Yeah, it's to a lot take to unpack, right? And, yeah. But it lot. gave me freedom. Right. In a way that I didn't experience it here. So where do you see yourself 10 years from now? 10 years from now? Well, I de- well one thing, I, I, I can't go that far. I can say five years from now. One of the things I definitely want to be involved in is in public art. Okay. Because I definitely feel like it's important that more black artists have work in the public realm, especially in looking at monuments mm-hmm. and how we're represented and how the contributions that we've made to this country far exceeds our well-known leaders, you know, Mm. and every town, every city has these sort of, you know, black markers Mm -hmm. in them. There's an African American, you know, tradition. In fact, like I was researching for this project that that I submitted for, for transportation. And I was shocked by the amount of, black inventors and transportation in this country that we just don't even know about mm-hmm. and because there's no monuments to them right or discussions in the literature exactly. and, yeah so i think this is really a time for me to look at this new avenue with my work um and the other aspect is to delve more into sculpture and to sort of bridge the the sculpture work with the works on paper. So it's sort of like splitting, one going to public art and one adding sculpture into the new works that I do. That is awesome. So for people who want to learn more about your art, the work that you do, where can they find you online? Um, they can find me on Instagram at Florine de Mustaine, Um And they could also find it on the website at florindemustaine.com. Okay, Miss Demosten, thanks for coming on. This has Thank been you. fantastic. Mm-hmm.